the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Derek Bukema, pastor of Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, and I'm so glad that you've joined us today for Grounded and Growing in Christ here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Each weekday at this time, we open God's Word, exploring how it changes us and brings us closer to Him. Right now, we're in a series of messages that we're calling Jesus Above Everything, where we're examining how Jesus is greater than anything or anyone. To hear all of the messages in this series, please visit groundedandgrowingradio.com. And if you'd like to help provide financial support for this radio ministry, you can make a gift of any size at that same website, groundedandgrowingradio.com. If you're not already a part of a local church family, then I would like to invite you to visit us at Orland Park CRC this Sunday as we gather to worship the Lord and study His Word together. To find our service times and location information, just visit groundedandgrowingradio.com. And now, let's open God's Word to see what He has for us today. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3? Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to read through verse 11. This is how my Bible reads. This is what the scripture says. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you die, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, by barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. I've entitled this sermon, Live Like You've Died. So I have a friend, he's a minister in the Christian Reformed Church. He and I were at Synod 2016 together, and that's where we became friends. He spoke bravely and convincingly on the matter of sexual morality with a prophetic voice and a sharp mind and a loving heart. He told me while we were at Synod together that he pastored a church that was divided on the matters of sexual morality, and it was going to be a challenge to return home to the place where he ministered and serve again, having so clearly and openly announced and supported that which God claims to be true in his word. He talked about how it was going to be difficult to re-enter regular ministry. We talked a few months after Synod 2016, maybe three or four or five months after Synod 2016, and he acknowledged that the months that followed were the most challenging months of his life in ministry after returning to his congregation. 
He had experienced opposition from some people within that church body and some pastors that surrounded that church body. He had experienced his name being slandered. He had had all manner of bad things being said about him. I was sorry for him, but he told me something remarkable in that conversation. He said, you know what, Derek? I'm grateful for it. He said, I have never experienced the closeness of God like I have in the last few months. He said to me, all it took was for me to be able to say, Lord, I'm willing to let my reputation die. I'm willing to let what uh, other people think of me die. I'm even willing to let my service in this particular place die for the sake of you and your truth. And he concluded, having died to my own desire for honor or respect, I find a sweetness in simply telling the truth and knowing that the Lord loves me and holds on to me. There was a tangible and glorious freedom that my friend experienced, but it took something extremely difficult, so difficult that few of us are ever willing to make the sort of sacrifice that he did. It took him being willing to die. Pastors, you see, we're frail just like everyone else. My guess is that each one of us would love to keep intact a good name, the honor of a certain position, freedom from scathing criticism. And sometimes, because we want to protect ourselves, we're silent when we should speak, because we know to tell the truth in one situation or another would mean death, death of relationships, position, prestige, or profits. But there is immense joy and freedom if you are willing to die. And there's proper power in it too. Once you realize that you've died, who can take anything from you? If you've already died to that way of operating, who can take anything from you? Now this all might sound rather counterintuitive, but it's the logic of the kingdom of the Lord, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read to you Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 38. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself And take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. In Colossians, in this series, we're working through the logic of the kingdom of God continues in this particular passage. We're told this morning to be encouraged in a remarkable way. We're encouraged within this passage by being told that we have died. That's what verse 3 tells us, that we have died. And that because we've died, we need to put to death all of the things that characterized us when we used to live in accordance with the ways of the world. The passage this morning tells us that since we've been raised with Jesus, we need to think about Jesus. And since we've died with Jesus, we need to live like Jesus. I kind of like the way that that sounds, so I'm going to play it back one more time. Since we've been raised with Jesus, we need to think about Jesus. And since we've died with Jesus, we need to live like Jesus. We're going to talk about that in three points, thinking about Jesus Dying with Jesus and for the sake of the cadets among us, living for Jesus. That's going to be the final point. So we're going to do thinking about Jesus, dying with Jesus, and living for Jesus. Let's start with thinking about 
Jesus. The beginning of this passage continues the book's theme of the supremacy of Jesus in all things, and it continues Paul's arguments against the false teachers that existed in Colossae at this particular time. And he does it in the most brilliant of ways. The church in Colossae, again, is being tempted by false teachers who are trying to tell them that the physical is bad and that the spiritual is good. They're trying to tell them that there is a secret, mysterious wisdom only for a special, enlightened few that they could let them into. A mysterious spiritual knowledge that was only for the best of the best, the most elite. These false teachers would come to deny that Jesus came in the flesh. And the New Testament writers are constantly dealing with this false teaching. Second John 1.7 shows us this very directly. For many deceivers have gone into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the antichrist. Paul here is going after the same false teaching, and he does it by using some of the language that these false teachers themselves would have employed as they were trying to draw people in to their way of thinking. He says, seek the things that are above. Set your minds on things that are above and not things of the earth. Now that sounds like some of the teaching of these false teachers that he's going after. But what he does is he uses that sort of language and uses it in this profoundly Christ-centered and Christian way to totally undermine the argument of the false teaching that he is attacking. Because what precisely does he tell us to fix our attention on? Or more specifically, who does he command us to set our mind on? Jesus. In a final resounding slap to his opponents, he says to the Colossian Christians, set your minds on things above, of course, because if you do, you'll remember that there's someone with real flesh and blood there. Jesus Christ, the God-man. Jesus is in heaven still with his resurrection body of flesh and blood. As one Reformation document puts it, written in Great Britain, Christ did truly rise again from death. And took again his body with flesh, bones, and all things appertaining to the perfection of man's nature, wherewith he ascended into heaven, and there sitteth until he returned to judge all men at the last day. Man, the British know how to put things proper. That sounds pretty proper to me. Here's what they're saying. Here's what this reformed document is saying. Jesus rose and really got up with flesh and blood and bones and all of it. And with all of that, he ascended into heaven and he is going to be there until he returns again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And that's who we're supposed to set our minds on. Not abstract spiritual principles, not contemplating philosophical truths, but we're supposed to allow our minds to go heavenward so that we might think about Jesus and setting your mind on Jesus as he is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling over all things as the sovereign over all, this has an immediate present benefit. Let me give you two examples of it. The first is from the Heidelberg Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism asks us this. How does the ascension of Jesus into heaven benefit us? Here's the answer. First, he is our advocate in heaven in the presence of his Father. Second, the way that the ascension benefits us is that we have our own flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that Christ, our head, will also take us, his members, to himself. And third, he sends his spirit to us on earth as a corresponding pledge by the spirit's power. We seek not earthly things, but things above where Christ is sitting at God's right hand. 
this treatment of the ascension actually uses Colossians chapter 3 in the Heidelberg Catechism to say, hey, this is a huge benefit because not only do we know that Christ is in heaven interceding for us, we also know that we already have flesh and blood, human flesh and blood in heaven as this assurance that we're going to be there too with the Son and the Father. Let me put it to you another way. There's an immense benefit in simply knowing and seeing that Jesus is in heaven. When the first martyr is facing his death, Stephen, you remember what happens, right? It's recorded in Acts chapter 7, verse 55. Let me read you that one verse. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. If the world or the flesh or the devil rages at you and causes you to fear, if and when you feel weak, when it feels like the world is slipping away into chaos, there's only one solution. You must see Jesus. You must see Jesus at the right hand of the Father. You must set your mind on him. Or think about what we sang today. When Satan tempts me to despair or tells me the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. In the times where you despair or wonder, how could God receive me? Could he possibly still love me? With all of the wrong that I've done, with all the sin that I've committed, with all of the ways that I've been faithless, would he possibly still receive me? Well, set your mind on Jesus. And remember that he, at this moment, carries his scars in heaven because he went to the cross for you to give his body, for you to shed his blood for you. He rules the nations right now. And so don't be afraid. Today's message in our Jesus Above Everything series will continue in just a moment. We wanted to let you know that you can download a copy of the ebook Answering Seven Hard Questions That Christians Ask absolutely free when you visit groundedandgrowingradio.com. While you're there, you can also listen to past messages of this radio program. This radio ministry is supported by gifts from listeners like you. To support this ministry, you can give a gift of any amount when you visit groundedandgrowingradio.com and click on the Give a Gift button. We appreciate your support as we share this work with listeners across Chicagoland. Now, we continue with today's message from Pastor Derek on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. That's the first part of the passage is thinking about Jesus because we've been raised with him. The second part has to do with death. Verse three switches things and tells us, for you have died. It's a repetition of a theme that was found in chapter two, verse 20. You died to the elemental spirits of the world. I guess we could put it this way. When you heard the call of Jesus and you took up your cross and followed him in obedience and love, you were set free from all of the tyranny of this world, the tyranny of the devil. You died to all of those ways of operating. And they died to you. And now, your life is hidden. Your life is hidden. Now, what does that mean? Well, we obviously, having died to the ways of the world, we haven't been physically transported to heaven to be hidden there. We still are really in Orland Park right now at this very moment, or wherever you're watching this online with us. Thank you for joining us from wherever you are across the globe. We're obviously not transported into heaven quite yet. We're still really physically here. It's not, it's not pretend. You are really sitting where you are sitting this morning. So what does it mean that our life is hidden in heaven with God? What does it mean that when Christ appears, then we'll appear as well? What does it mean that we are at present hidden? Well, let me give you, let me give you two options 
And I actually don't think they're in conflict. I actually think these two things fit together in this passage. The first is this. Throughout uh, Jewish apocalyptic literature, there is language of things being hidden and things being revealed, or things being hidden and then things appearing. The book Revelation, it's, uh, in Greek, it's the apocalypse of John. It just means that, that things are revealed. It means that that which is hidden becomes revealed and exposed and appears. And so in this sort of language, what, what may be happening in this passage is that Paul is saying, hey, right now, right now, Christians look no different from someone who's not yet trusted in Jesus. We often wear the same clothes, we work the same jobs, we cheer for the same sports teams, we scroll the same Instagram, we shop at the same Target, we run on the same roads, so on and so forth. And so right now, as we're living, things don't look so different. What's even more challenging is right now, the things of the world seem more powerful. Wealth and strength and youth and fame. And it seems like those that don't follow God are the ones who get ahead. It seems sometimes that the morality of the secularists is the one that should be pursued. Do what you want, when you want, with whomever you want, as long as it's legal and mock or demean those who won't. But when Jesus returns, everything is going to be revealed as it truly is. Right now, things are hidden. And your life is actually hidden with God. When Christ appears, the wisdom of the world is going to be revealed as the foolishness that it really is. The power of the world will be revealed to be so weak in comparison with the strength of God. And all who have trusted in Jesus, who are at present hidden in heaven with God, will be revealed to be the sinless, righteous ones, purified by the blood of the Lamb. Right now, all of this stuff is hidden. It's difficult to see it. And sometimes it's challenging, but it's because it's hidden, but it will be revealed. All right, here's the other part of all of it. In Greek grammars or dictionaries, this word that is translated hidden is is sort of the way that it's described is hidden away in a safe place. Hidden away in a safe place. So as we've been hidden with God, it's a reminder that we are safe, that God is not going to let us go, that he won't let our faith fail. That he will carry us to the end when we will live with him always. We're hidden away in a place that is safe. And God will preserve and protect and keep us there. It's like that great hymn says. In the rifted rock I'm resting, safely sheltered. I abide. There no foes nor storms assail me while within the cleft I hide. Now I'm resting, sweetly resting in the cleft once made for me. Jesus, blessed rock of ages, I will hide myself in thee. You're hidden away, you're safe, you're protected. I think that these two themes fit together and work together. Things are going to be revealed, and until they are, you are safe. You are safe. Then he starts making moral application. And this is when we get into living for Jesus. Because you and I have died, we must put to death everything that characterized our life in sinful ways. Before we knew Jesus. Because you and I have died, verse 3, we need to put to death all the sins that characterize us before we came to know Jesus. That's verse 5. You died, verse 3. It ties right in with verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Because you died to all of that which was earthly, you need to be active in putting it to death now. 
That's the logic of the passage. And this is how we're transitioned from the beginning part of the book, which talks about all of the glories and the riches of Jesus and knowing him and serving him and loving him and trusting him. And this passage, verse 1 through 4, sort of moves us from all of these heavenly glories of knowing and thinking about Jesus to the practical effects about how that should impact our life now. And the logic is this, because we died to all of those ways of operating that used to characterize us, we need to be active in putting to death that sin in our life now. Because Jesus is who he says he is, because he is all-surpassingly glorious, because he is the only one who can save, because he died and rose again and ascended into heaven, because your life is hidden with him in heaven right now, we should act differently. We should put to death sinful ways of acting or operating or behaving. And in this section of scripture, there are two types of sin that we're told to put to death. The first one is sexual sin. And the second one is relational sin. Do you notice that the first list of sins that this is all having to do with sexual sin, verse 5 says this, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. The kind of covetousness here is like what's spoken of in the Ten Commandments, don't covet your neighbor's wife. So all of these things have to do with sexual sin. Sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. That's the first list of things that he uh, goes through. And so the first thing that we need to work to put to death is sexual immorality in our life. This is one of the things that you and I are called to, to putting it to death. A beautiful illustration of all of this is found in the book that was written by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. Maybe you've, maybe you've um, read it. In it, it's a, a fictional story about... Uh, about C.S. Lewis himself, about how he's writing and he has a dream. And then in the dream, he takes a bus up to heaven with some other people that are sort of in this middle space and they kind of have to decide, am I going to go with God or am I not? Because in the book, the the sun is about to rise and things are about to be locked in. You have to make your decision. Am I going to be with God or am I not? And in this, Lewis goes from person to person that he meets in heaven. As these visitors have been permitted to be there for a little while, Lewis sees a ghost, a visiting ghost that's there along with him. Those who have trusted in Jesus and are, are in, in the presence of God have these solid bodies. Those who have not yet have these like ghostly bodies. So there's this visiting ghost and this visiting ghost has a lizard on its shoulder. And the lizard represents a life that's been ruined by lust. The lust now takes the form of a lizard who sits on his shoulder. Let me read to you just a portion from the book where Lewis is seeing or experiencing these things. He says this, I saw coming towards us a ghost who carried something on his shoulder. What sat on his shoulder was a little red lizard, and it was twitching its tail like a whip and whispering things in his ear. As we caught sight of him, he turned his head to the reptile with a snarl of impatience. Shut your mouth, I tell you, he said. It wagged its tail and continued to whisper to him. He ceased snarling and presently began to smile. Then he turned and started to limp westward away from the mountains. Off so soon, said a voice. The speaker was more or less human in shape, but larger than a man, and so bright that I could hardly look at him. His presence smote on my eyes and on my body too, for there was that heat coming from him as well as light, like the morning sun at the beginning of a summer day. Yes, I'm off, says the ghost. Thank you for all your hospitality, but but it's no good. You see, I told this little chap, here he indicated the lizard, that he'd have to be quite quiet if we came up here, which he insisted on doing. Of course, his stuff won't go on up here, I realize that, but he won't stop, so I'll have to turn around and just go home. Would you like me to make him quiet? 
said the flaming spirit, an angel, as I now understood. Well, of, of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Oh, ah, ah, you're burning me. Keep away, said the ghost, retreating. You don't want him killed? You didn't say anything about killing him at first. I, I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, that's a, a further question. I'm open to consider it, but it's a new point, isn't it? I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing it because, well, up here, it's, it's so embarrassing that he's here. May I kill it? Well, we can discuss that later. There's no time. May I kill it? Please, I, I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, really don't bother. Look, it's gone to sleep of its own accord. I'm sure it will be all right now. Thanks ever so much. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think that there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I shall be able to keep it in order now. I think the gradual process would be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all, the angel finally says. And after all of this back and forth, the man who has been struggling with lust his whole life, represented by this red lizard, finally relents and says to the angel, you may kill it, which the angel does. And then, you know, Lewis's glorious imagination is on display here. Because as that sin is killed, this man who was in ghostly appearance becomes solid. He's decided he wants to follow the ways of God and put to death that which characterized him when he was disobeying the Lord. And the lizard dies, but then is reborn as a unicorn. And the man hops on the unicorn and rides away into the mountains to draw nearer and nearer and nearer to the Lord. The picture is this, is that God created sex and sexuality to be something that's good. And when this man was willing to put to death that which was immoral. It could be born again as something that was good and beautiful and glorious and God-honoring. And so as verse 5 tells us that we need to put to death sexual immorality, we do that because we realize that what God has given to us is good. It's very good. And because of that, the abuse of it is bad. You've been listening to today's message from Pastor Derek Bukema in our series, Jesus Above Everything, where we're examining how Jesus is greater than anything or anyone. To learn more about Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, listen to past programs, and to give a gift to support our work preaching the Bible on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, visit us today at groundedandgrowingradio.com. And while you're there, please sign up to download your free copy of the ebook Answering Seven Hard Questions That Christians Ask. Again, that's groundedandgrowingradio.com. This is Pastor Derek Bukema, and on behalf of Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, we want to thank you for your support and partnership in proclaiming the gospel here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. If you're looking for a local church to call home, Orland Park Christian Reformed Church welcomes you to worship with us this Sunday. You can find all the details online at groundedandgrowingradio.com. Thanks again for joining us, and until next time, may God bless you. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.